We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin. Hey, good evening. And also with us again, uh, we have Taiwan This Week frequent flyer, rewards card holder, premium member Michael Turton, who is, of course, the man behind popular Taiwan current events blog, The View from Taiwan. Michael, really glad to have you back. Really glad to be here, Keith. And rounding out the table, uh, we are really happy to welcome back once again uh, Taipei Times' own Jason Pan. Jason, good to have you. Good evening, everybody. On the show today, uh, well, two of our panelists got up close and personal with Taiwan's military as it carried out the five-day Hanguang military exercises. We'll be hearing from them what they learned from their time watching the annual live fire drills all the way down in Pingdong. Uh, and as usual, we've got a bit of a political roundup to get to with one story each for the green and blue camps. Then in the second half, the Taipei-Shanghai Forum saw high-ranking officials from China visiting Taipei this week. With cross-strait relations uh, a little bit constipated recently, we'll look at whether or not these city-to-city ties will be enough to get things flowing again. And then to round out the broadcast, we'll talk about the Olympics. Oh, the Olympics. Well, we'll save that one for the end because uh, first uh, we've got some business to attend to. Some mega business, actually, because this week we had some mega controversy and a mega fine for Taiwan's own mega bank. Let's break it down to mini size real quick. Late last week, New York regulators served a 180 million U.S. dollar fine to mega bank uh, after an investigation revealed lax enforcement of U.S. anti-money laundering laws. Now the executive yuan is moving to investigate the bank uh, and is also trying to push other Taiwan banks to improve their compliance uh, with foreign regulations. And uh, with that, I think I've just said about uh, just about everything that I know about this one. So to save me before I walk off this ledge, uh, we have on the phone now uh, Paul Pankhurst. He is a finance editor for Bloomberg News in Hong Kong, uh, and he's going to fill us in on the rest of the details for this story. Uh, Paul, thanks for being with us this evening. Sure. Um, so I think the, the report from the U.S. regulator was pretty damning. Um, it described the compliance program that Mega had um, for you know anti-money laundering as being a hollow shell. Um, and it was pretty obvious from the decision as well that um, the bank had got offside with the U.S. regulator. Um, there, was, there was talk of how um, it hadn't really taken these issues very seriously. Um, and the U.S. was focused on transactions flowing between um, the New York branch of Mega and the um, Panama branches of Mega and said that there had been suspicious transactions and it also said that um, the bank had been involved with clients of um, the law firm which was at the centre of the uh, the Panama Papers, um, the firm that set up shell companies uh, called Mossack Fanseca. So, um, you know, not a good look at all for the um, for the bank. And um, I think it's quite a surprising case, too, because these guys have been in um, New York for a long time, many decades. Um, they've been in Panama for um, since the 1970s. Um, and it's kind of like, how did they let things get so lax? Um, so I think there's a lot of questions to be asked, actually, and hopefully um, the, the Taiwanese media and the lawmakers... Um, We'll focus on this case and see if we can get uh, some more information from the bank. Mm. Right. And of course, uh, Taiwan, as I just mentioned, uh, Taiwan regulators are investigating. So, you know, the the investigation is ongoing. We don't necessarily know uh, everything yet. But from what we know so far, I mean, the accusation is not that uh, the bankers here engage themselves in any kind of money laundering. It was more just that they didn't necessarily do anything to or, or do enough to prevent uh, potential money laundering. Yeah, that's correct. Although I think, you know, when the bank says, um, you know, OK, we haven't been involved in money laundering as a blanket statement, um, the fact is that they've admitted that there was a whole series of suspicious transactions. So, I mean, they may say, well, we, we weren't knowingly involved, but I mean, the evidence so far, um, what we've seen of it, um, suggests that uh, it's hard for them to make a definitive statement about that, right? Right, right. Uh, another detail of this case is uh, the the activity that we're talking about here goes back to 2012, is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that, I mean, the other problem that they've got is that, um, okay, as part of the deal um, with the regulator, um, a person called a monitor gets installed in the branch to kind of oversee what's happening. Um, And the bad news for the bank is that the monitor is going to actually further look into uh, transactions to see whether there were um, breaches of what are called the OFAC sanctions regime. So basically, um, between 2012 and 2014, um, were there transactions um, to... um, you know, you're looking at countries like Iran or North Korea or, or whatever, the countries that are on the blacklist, um, were there any problems in that area? So, um, you know, that indicates that there's still a potential for MEGA to, to still face more problems from these issues and that it, it may not all have been resolved, even with that $180 million fine. Right. Well, let's talk about that $180 million fine. I mean, I'm not in the finance world, so that just seems like an astronomical number to me. Uh, but uh, maybe uh, as somebody who's seen similar cases, in the past, you have more of a sense, maybe you can put that into context uh, Context for us. Is that a crazy high number? I mean, is that a usual uh, level of fine for, for this sort of thing? On the, on the global scale, in terms of what we've seen since the financial crisis, that's actually quite minor. Um, mm. For example, uh, HSBC was involved in, um, it allowed uh, drug cartels in Mexico and Colombia to uh, channel money through HSBC branches, and um, HSBC ended up paying a, a fine of uh, $1.9 billion for that. Um, I know that in Europe, uh, the combined uh, fines that banks have paid for uh, breaches of um, you know, sanctions and um, anti-money laundering um, rules um, were over $15 billion between 2009 and 2016. So, yeah, on the global scale... <laughs> On the global scale, it's it's not so huge, but I guess for Mega, it was a fairly significant chunk of um, their annual profit. Right, right. Uh, I, if if I'm remembering this correctly, I believe it was eight years of uh, profits is is what that 180 million dollar uh, fine came from. Now. Taiwan is, of course, always very concerned about its international image, uh, and we hear all the time about how it wants to up its uh, trade ties, financial ties with countries around the world. Uh, and then here we have a case like this, uh, and then kind of compounding that, we, we heard reports later in the week that this, uh, you know, the, 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 the fine and all this could potentially hurt Taiwan's ratings from certain ratings agencies that look at money laundering uh, as, as a you know, potential issue. Uh, does this have the potential to taint Taiwan's uh, international uh, image uh, in terms of you know, how safe the financial sector is, how above board the financial sector is over here? Well, I think what, what's of concern about this case, or like another aspect of concern, is that Mega had actually previously got into trouble in Australia for similar issues, um, that its, its um, compliance regime was seen as being inadequate and it was hauled over the coals by the regulators in Australia. And so you've got to ask, well, that was back in 2009, 2010. Um, we know that... Globally, you know, compliance issues have become um, such a big focus since the financial crisis. Um, you know, Mega had that early run in, in Australia, and, and you've sort of got to ask, well, given that, how did they end up with such a lax um, situation that um, they were seen as, as having completely inadequate compliance in New York? Um, mm. So in terms of Taiwan's reputation in general, I mean... As I say, I mean, this stuff is not nearly as bad as the worst the worst offending that we've seen by global banks. So, I mean, put it in that perspective, I mean, no one's going to sort of suddenly single out Taiwan and say, wow, you guys are the worst, because clearly um, Taiwan's not the worst. Um, but um, given that this is a major bank that it had a prior sort of similar case, it does make you wonder what's going on. I'd be very interested in whether the management of the bank is um, the same now as it was in 2009, 2010, and whether that's changed. Whether, for example, it could have been cost-cutting, which encouraged, encouraged them to um, become lax, or um, whether there's just an element of stupidity, or whether there's something more nefarious. You know, it's hard to know without um, having more details. Mm. So you, you, as, as you observe this case unfold, is that kind of going to be what you're looking for, is what were the underlying issues? Issues, uh, and what, perhaps are there broader underlying issues that we, we might see uh, elsewhere in Taiwan's financial industry? 
I mean, we'd be focused like really on on mega and exactly what's been happening inside that bank um, mm-hmm. and and how you could end up you know having similar uh, problems in Australia and then in New York um, on this kind of scale. Um, I've, I've got no idea. Um, perhaps other people in Taiwan would know better whether um, there could be similar issues in other Taiwanese banks or whether this is just a one-off. Mm. All right. Well, uh, Paul, we're going to keep you on the line for just a couple of seconds. But uh, for right now, I'm going to turn things over to uh, some of our commentators in the studio over here. Uh, because uh, there was a, a certain amount of political fallout this week. Uh, the rumor mill got going. Some names got thrown into that mill. Uh, and uh, Jason, you've been kind of paying attention to this, so uh, I think you're on the hook for filling us in right now. Uh, what are the political? What's the whole political angle here? The DPP legislators and um, some of the political pundits have been saying this mega bank scandal, they call it, has been uh, a, a lot of to do with what KMT running of the whole financial institution when they were in power, mm. and they pointed to that. Uh, this whole thing happened uh, when Jing Puchong, as a very close aide of Ma Ying-jeou, uh, is in the U.S., and that uh, Ma Ying-jeou's wife, Zhou Meiqing, was uh, part of a mega bank's uh, legal counsel for a while. And this is all happening during Ma Ying-jeou's regime. So KMT has a lot to account for. And uh, there's also a recent uh, press conference that the, the DPP legislator, they said, the whole thing... A lot of seems evidence pointing to KMT try to uh, transfer its asset and also try to money laundering a lot of the KMT company. So I, I just want to put it in a broad context is that Mega Bank used to be state-run mm. uh, institution, but after the privatization, the, there's a still very significant share of a state uh, control uh, on its uh, board members and uh, its uh, share. So. Um, the background is in the past, it's been very close tie in with the uh, government, mm. i.e., the KMT and their financial uh, whole uh, links together. So, I guess uh, the question here would be w- w- was there perhaps uh, some amount of cover that the KMT was providing for the bank? Uh, at least uh, political uh, pundits and the DPP legislators believe so, and there have been a lot of rumor speculation flying in Taiwan media in the past week. I, w- I would just I would just point out that um, these reports from the US they they talk of suspicious transactions, but the, they, there's actually no um, they don't point to any definitive money laundering. Um, so uh, yeah, I just make that point that in terms of the bank, there's no the case has not been proved against it in any way of particular money laundering. Mm. Gavin, did you have anything you wanted to add? Only that we should probably say the former chairman of Mega Financial has been issued... That's another angle. ...has been slapped with a travel ban because he's being investigated now because, of course, he was in charge when all this hit the fan, so to speak. And uh, he, he, he resigned just a month after, which I guess... Is, which has raised speculation that he knew what was going on and just wanted to bail because he didn't want to be involved in it. Get out of Dodge Basically, while yeah. the getting's good. His name was McKinney, you... McKinney Tsai, just mm-hmm. in case we put his name out there. Choose the <laughs> chat we were talking about. Yeah. All right, and uh, McKinney Tsai, Gavin is the guy that you want to look for uh, when you hear this podcast. He's the one who said all that. But of uh, course, the Taipei, the ta- investigators here in Taipei, along with the Financial Supervisory Commission and the Ministry of Justice, are now looking at mega banks' um, business here mm-hmm. because there's now concern that they've actually violated Taiwan's Money Laundering Control Act, Taiwan's Banking Act, and Taiwan's Financial Holding Company Act. <laughs> all right. So uh, I guess we're just going to have to leave it there, as Gavin said, with uh, an awful lot of questions and stuff uh, still to learn so uh, we're going to stay on this case and uh, maybe we'll be uh, lucky enough to get Paul back on the line to help us out when we do so Uh, but for now we're going to have to say goodbye Uh, once again we were speaking right there to Paul Pankhurst he is the finance editor for Bloomberg News in Hong Kong we were hearing there behind him uh, just a little touch of the uh, Hong Kong newsroom kind of bubbling in the background Uh, and Paul thank you once again for joining us thanks very much and uh, the next story got uh, two of our panelists out of the office, uh, covering a different kind of business here, the business of war. We're talking about here the Hongkong live fire drills, which wrapped up this morning. Uh, these are the nation's largest annual live firing military exercises, and also very significantly, uh, the first of these to be held with the Thai administration in office. Uh, and so Gavin and Jason were uh, actually at the scene yesterday to observe the maneuvers at the Joint Operations Training Base in Pingdong County. Uh, Gavin, uh, fill us in a little bit. Uh, what exactly are the Hongguang drills? 
their annual exercises, military exercises. But some people say they're the biggest, but they're not quite the biggest. They're the ones that... Get, I just said they were the biggest. Get, well, they're the ones that get the most publicity because people see. are allowed to go to them. Ah, uh, okay. If you see what I mean. So they're, they're the biggest for the public. They're the biggest. They're all over the TV mm-hmm. and they design them for the TV. They're mm-hmm. like the big publicity act for the military. Yeah. They're not necessarily the biggest because, of course, the military have exercises every month. Mm-hmm. Somewhere on the island there's exercises. Right. But this week's are the Hangguang, and they're the most famous ones. So there we go. That's easy. Yeah. Well, they got you to show up. So I guess they're doing uh, something right there. Uh, well, let's just, uh, let's just go with what you observed. Uh, anything notable about this? Uh, there were some firsts this year, though. Okay. All right. The military yeah. used the Shuishan Tunnel for the first time in a military exercise. Mm-hmm. Jason was, in fact, at the Shuishan Tunnel at ungodly yeah. hours in the morning, mm-hmm. watching the military try to stop a Chinese invasion through the <laughs> Shuishan Tunnel. And that's just to kind of fill our listeners in. That's the real focus here is, you know, it's kind of uh, a mock Chinese uh, invasion. Mm. That was the first time they used the tunnel. The second one was, I believe, the one in Taichung. Jason was also there. They used the civilian National Aviation Corps, Transport Mm Corps, yeah. They were the first time. And they joined forces with the Special Forces troops Mm. to do some work in Taichung. And, of course, in Pingdong yesterday, we had basically an air, land and sea, well, basically air, land and sea exercise where we had um, artillery from an offshore frigate Mm -hmm. and jets, F-16s coming over, and ground forces operational. Mm. Gavin but, is so blasé about the business of war. But the interesting one was actually yesterday morning on Jingmen when mm-hmm. they had an artillery yeah. exercise. Yeah. And there yeah. was a great headline in today's papers saying 26 artillery guns mm. all let off at the same time yesterday yeah. on Jingmen. And apparently the whole island shook. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Wow, okay. So it's okay. some, some pretty significant artillery. Uh, yeah, like Gavin was saying there, uh, it, it wasn't just in Pingdong. It was in a number of other places, including Jinmen. Uh, let's turn things over to uh, Jason. How was your day uh, out of the office? Well, it was good to uh, be there at the Hanguang in, yesterday in Pingdong with uh, Gavin and uh, with a whole uh, media pool. Mm. And uh, I'll tell you, it, it's it's fun to see all these uh, you know weapons and missiles and rockets firing because you have to then make sure they hit the target area because um, we were wearing all these um, you know uh, soldier helmets and helmets flag vests yeah. yeah. uh, in the hope that you know uh, none of these. Uh, <laughs> Uh, shots uh, misfire, so... Well, but, I'm, but, I'm glad you made it back to us. Yeah, it was uh, very... A uh, lot of lot of fun, actually, because, uh, well, Hanguang, you, you really have to test, make sure all these uh, advanced weapons we bought from U.S. mostly are working, that, uh, you know, soldiers have been training so mm. uh, on them for these couple of years. And, uh, yes, you were right. This year, there's uh, something new, is that the Xuesan... Uh, tunnel has been closed down just to, uh, you know, uh, that was the first time to uh, drill, make sure in case of invasion, either as an evacuation rule or to block, uh, you know, yeah, uh, simulate a PLA invasion mm. uh, from coming up from Elan. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a series of uh, naval and uh, air force and also the, uh, you know, uh, army combined mm. exercise as well throughout island. So yesterday was uh, the the big one in Pingdong, but there was also uh, for this year, a, a a uh, fairly uh, interesting one is the cyber army uh, testing, which they say is the biggest uh, this year. So, uh, you know, from previous years, the cyber army unit, which is mm-hmm. yeah, DPP want to push through. Right. This is where they actually this year was the first time that the military anti-cyber warfare unit had teamed up with the private sector. Mm-hmm. They got mm-hmm. they got sort of experts in cyber attacks and cyber security from the private sector to mm-hmm. join forces with the military cyber attack unit. Right. Uh, a important theater of war going forward, uh, absolutely. Yeah, this scenario was China taking time to dismantle and take down the island's computer and telecommunications networks. Mm. Uh, did they win? Isn't Pokemon doing that already? <laughs> you <laughs> have to all... mention Pokemon. We'll get there in a minute, maybe this week, Michael. Maybe. Um, I try to be uh, attend as many of these as possible, but uh, the, the one we, we were at... Uh, the military base uh, yesterday was, was Gavin and Pingdong, but we missed the, 
another big one. Yesterday going on at the same time was amphibious landing, which mm. were at on the uh, uh, coast on uh, Pingdong County, and they mm. actually had the whole uh, you know uh, ground forces with tanks and armor personnel carriers, and so they was try to assimilate how to repel. Uh, mm-hmm. PLA comes from one of the shoreline amphibious uh, assault landing beachhead and how to drive them back to the sea. Mm. All right. So <laughs> sounds like you had a very interesting uh, time of it down there. Uh, now, like I mentioned, this was uh, the first Hangguang exercise that uh, Tsai Ing-wen has overseen. And she had a couple of things to say, mm-hmm. Gavin, but maybe not too much. No, she said that her administration will seek to devise a new military strategy aimed at charting a new direction for the island's armed forces and changing its culture. Mm. And speaking at the military base, which happens to be the same military base that the tank fell off a bridge in, believe it or not. Last week, yeah. Last week, yeah. She referred to the planned changes as being new regulations for operations that currently have no standard operating procedures and amendments to regulations where rules are currently unrealistic. Mm. She also said that her administration will ensure that the replacement of obsolete military equipment would top the agenda of any proposed or implemented changes. And that was about as specific as she got because she didn't basically give any specifics at all apart from mentoring... Um, individual equipment carried by soldiers as one of the top priorities. But there was no nitty-gritty about what they planned to do. But it did seem like she was trying to signal, in general, uh, some amount of reform for the military. A yeah, little well, this, bit could of a... Be, this could be taken too. Uh, this could be taken, of course, because the accident, we had the missile accident killing a fisherman and injuring two members of the fishing boat crew in July. And, of course, we had the tank incident where four tank crew members died in, earlier this month, basically. And then we so had the dog the, incident. It's been, a, it's been a rough patch. Well, basically, the military is trying to basically boost its public image, because its right. public image is basically at the bottom of the toilet at the moment. And, of course, they want a fully volunteer army. Now, Ty did say that an initial draft of the new policies will be completed by January of next year. Now, this what might well have come as a surprise to many people, but if anybody actually read the DPP's 2015 Defence Blue Paper, they would have read the sentence that the party will place specific... the famous bedtime reading here we go this is from it the party places specific emphasis on the first year of the administration that being the Thai administration as a year for review and preparation in order to ensure a smooth military transition so basically the dpp had already said that the first year of the Thai administration would simply be a, 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 a wait and see a review and let's go and see so mm. her announcing this on thursday of this week was basically saying yeah we're going ahead with our review of the military it will be completed in january of next year and there's the year of review over we'll give you mm. the report then there we go uh jason i'll let you have the closing thoughts on this one um I must add another perspective is that uh, DPP and Tsai Ing-wen is trying to uh, uh, push reform because uh, there's been a lot of uh, not just the operating um, mishaps, but a lot of uh, financial uh, scandals involving a procurement of Taiwan's military. Mm. So uh, they have tried to cut out all these uh, bid rigging and all these uh, uh, overpaying for, you know, uh, weapon system. And also uh, a lot of it uh, must say, like retire uh, soldiers, a military officer who uh, formed their own company and big rigging, they they are the same group of people. So they were able to uh, pretty well monopolize the whole uh, uh, procurement uh, procedure. So there's a lot of waste of money, uh, quote-unquote, uh, in the whole uh, military uh, acquirement of uh, uh, hardware. So I mm. think TPP tried to uh, reform in that direction. So a lot on their plate. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we are going to leave the military behind and uh, come up on our last segment for this first half of the show. Uh, As promised, uh, we can't leave domestic politics out of the mix for a whole show, so we're going to race through uh, two stories uh, before we hit the break. Uh, And I do mean race through because uh, we have a lot more stories to cover when we get back from the break, so we can't dwell too much. Uh, And uh, each of these are coming from either the blue or the green camp. We're covering both sides uh, for this show. First up, we're going to cover the blue side and uh, take a look at the continuing ongoing conflicts within the KMT. The Taipei Times reported this week uh, that several KMT representatives uh, from overseas are sponsoring a petition that calls for the ouster of KMT legislator Wang Jinping. Gavin? Yeah, this is quite interesting, of course, because several years ago, certain cliques within the KMT tried to oust the former legislative speaker, and that fell flat because, of course, he ended up still walking around with that lovely smile he has on his face all the time <laughs> anyone asks him a question. So fetching. 
It's great. It's like the guy is the guy has made a political career of not offending anybody. So <laughs> yeah, how the yeah. it's just an amazing mm-hmm. political career he's had. Mm-hmm. But the, as you said, Keith, the overseas representatives of the KMT have now set a petition in motion, which will be discussed at the KMT's National Congress on September the fourth. Now they slammed Wong for what they claim to be his failure to properly handle the April 2014 occupation of the Legislative UN by student protesters. They also questioned Wong's involvement in a breach of trust lawsuit on behalf of DPP caucus whip Ke Jeng Ming in 2013 and they also went as far to slam his decision to form a cross-party legislative caucus negotiation committee. Mm. So a I lot of continue. Right. Because they also slammed the KMT's evaluation and discipline committee who revoked Wong's membership temporarily in 2013 mm. but then didn't go further on it and failed to go through with the full expulsion order which is what all this stems from and of course Wong's case back then as Michael will tell us in a minute was all related to a dispute with President Ma Ying-jeou <laughs> Ma and Wong have long been rivals uh, they both ran in for the chairmanship what was it 2004 mm-hmm. and uh, the interesting thing about that was that the elites had supported Wong mm-hmm. and so uh, I think uh, this goes back a long way and Wang Jinping is uh, known as a deal maker. He's he's a very smooth operator, and he tr- really um, he works with DPP. He was wor- uh, 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 you know wor- working very smoothly in a lot of aspect in the political uh, situation, especially uh, at the government level or legislative uh, yuan at the legislative yuan. Mm. Um, he is seen as the uh, so called. Taiwan native Taiwanese faction in the KMT, mm-hmm. and so uh, some observers saying this is the coming a uh, big split in the KMT's own fight between the the uh, mainland Chinese uh, faction who are seem to be uh, running away with agenda or are taking control of party right now. So I just want to you know remind everybody that KMT as we uh, we like to write it is the the. The way we call it, the official name is Zhongguo Kuomintang, the Chinese Nationalist Party. Mm-hmm. So whether they can continue their China, pro-Chinese uh, uh, political agenda or they want turn a little bit toward a more pro-Taiwanese agenda, let's mm-hmm. see how this fight comes out. I think I don't think anything's going to come of it because Ma, uh, because Wang's already in eclipse yeah. and he's already yeah. he's out of the scene. He's been a broker. He's not a leader. He's a lawmaker at large now. Yeah, there's a vote. Yeah, a <laughs> vote. He's important. He's got, yeah, a vote. Especially if you're on a minority party. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they can can but of course, the good thing about Wong, or well, the good thing, the, 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 the clever thing about Wong, he always played both sides. He could yeah. always get on with both yeah. sides. He got on with the DPP. Yep. He got yep. on with the KMT. Yeah. He even got on with the TSU. <laughs> and if you remember the KMT one. to get on with the TSU was always quite something. So, so Michael, I mean, the 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 list of grievances that Gavin kind of laid out there, they're all hyper-partisan grievances. A, a lot of them could basically boil down to, you weren't punching the DPP hard enough. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so the fact that this is the set of issues that uh, members of the KMT really care about and they're really pushing, and also, you know, the fact that the party is uh, still being helmed by Miss uh, Hong Shouju, I mean, is this is this a signal that we're, we're in for the long haul on this very partisan uh, KMT, very partisan climate? I think so, and uh, it looks like the the rigid ideological types are going to win. Mm. The the purity crowd's going to win. So yeah, I, um, I don't I don't like to editorialize too much in this show, but uh, my sense is that's not great for Taiwan politics. Am I off base on that feeling? Well, I think a lot of people would agree with you that that's not great. Although personally, I'm happy to see it. <laughs> I think that in a in a winner take all system, you you usually end up with two parties. So, from my point of view, if the DPP wants to keep the KMT down, it's going to have to foster the NPP to come mm. up and replace it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the DPP has that kind of uh, vision and magnanimity. So you're basically saying by doing this, the KMT is counting themselves out and making it harder for them to. In order to survive, they have to Taiwanize. They have to mm-hmm. become a party of Taiwan, and they won't as long as people like Wong can't make it in the party. Mm. All right. Well, uh, on that note, we're going to move on to our last political story in this political roundup. Uh, Now, on the green side, uh, the comfort women issue came up again this week. Of course, when we're talking about comfort women, we're talking about the more than 2,000 Taiwanese women uh, who were forced into sexual slavery uh, by the Japanese Imperial Army during uh, World War II. Uh, Also, you know, many women from other Asian countries as well, including China and Korea. 
Uh, now, the Thai administration told the press that it is going to continue to pressure Japan uh, to issue a formal apology to Taiwanese comfort women uh, and also offer compensation. Uh, they made that announcement following news that uh, Japan's cabinet uh, had approved uh, to, you know, send some money over to South Korean comfort women. So basically, uh, you know, Japan is making moves to uh, make amends with South Korean comfort women. Press in Taiwan is asking the Thai administration, are you going to continue pressing this issue? The Thai administration says yes. Uh, and this is kind of interesting because as we've discussed on the show before, uh, in some segments of uh, politics here in Taiwan, this is uh, very much seen as a KMT issue, almost uh, a, a figment of KMT propaganda. Uh, the way that it's been explained to me is, you know, uh, for the KMT, this is a way of uh, framing the Japanese as the evil invaders, uh, as you know, and, and keeping that image of Japan alive. Uh, and so it's not generally seen as something that people in the green camp uh, necessarily care a whole lot about. Uh, and the fact that uh, the Thai administration is keeping this alive uh, is interesting. Uh, and I'm curious uh, to hear both of your thoughts on uh, what, what, what might be behind that. Well, I would say that, uh, as you were saying before the show, this is a way of turning the issue into a human rights issue instead of a political issue. Right. It's yeah. actually diffusing it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's more, and as long as it's used as a way of attacking Japan, there's less mm-hmm. chance of those women getting compensated. But right, um, do you no. think that the do you think that there's room for that though? Because I mean, one one way to uh, th- this can always be framed as you know whose country was doing the worst thing during the war. Uh, you're signaling out Japan. The reason you keep this alive is just because you want it's one country versus another. Is is there room for this to become you know a pure human rights issue uh, that can be discussed in those terms? Yes, I think there is, because the difference here is that there was a substantial Taiwanese element in the Japanese army and in the Japanese colonial system abroad. There's 100 to 200,000 Taiwanese went over. So the Taiwanese have a much better view of Japan than the South Koreans, mm. and it can easily become a, a human yep. rights issue. Mm. Um, I believe so. It should be focused as a, a, a issue of human rights, because sexual slavery you know, during wartime, that's wrong, and people who suffer, they should get some compensation or at least get their justice. Mm. But I, uh, in Taiwan, a lot of these uh, uh, issues become uh, politicized excessively, uh, they become polarized in terms mm-hmm. of blue and green. And, right. uh, and uh, I think uh, especially KMT, and also the uh, people first party, mm-hmm. like uh, people like um, you know, uh, in in these type of very more uh, deep green uh, party people, they try to just make it as a to uh, to an extreme appeal to an extreme element of their party, and I, mm. I, uh, it's a very sensitive issue. So, right, of course, and it, it also uh, brings back a lot of uh, bad memory wartime, but. It's just uh, you know uh, politicizing the issue. To uh, I think it's, it's not not a good good way to deal with such a you know human rights issue. Do, do do you have the sense that that may be dissipating now that we're out of a KMT administration? You know this 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 issue can be looked at through a lens that is not purely a political lens. Um, yes, I believe so. Uh, now that. DPP is in power. There, um, uh, it's not that you know uh, they are in in any sort of a way having to deal with this in a more rational way. But just that we have less of this political thrill from a lot of these uh, deep green, uh, deep blue camps. Mm. Um, they they try to. Uh, I think it's we could deal with this more in a on a human rights level mm. uh, in in this time. So it just uh, the, the, it helps us clear up the waters. The waters aren't quite so muddied up by politics here. Mm-hmm. And uh, Michael, I'll, I'll let you close this one out. Yeah, I think uh, once you once you frame the the comfort women as a human rights issue, that then opens the door to rehabilitating, legitimating the Taiwanese who served in the Japanese army. Right. So I mean, if we take some of the mud out of this water, if we get the muck out of it, it really does give us a chance to re-examine a lot of these historical issues. Right. All right. Uh, Well, we are going to move on now uh, because we are coming up on a break. When we return, cross-trade politics come to Taipei. We discuss the Taipei-Shanghai Forum as China-Taiwan ties remain frozen just about everywhere else. And we'll round out the broadcast uh, talking about the Olympics. Oh, the Olympics. All that and more when we return to Taiwan this week.
Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Michael Turton, and Jason Pan. Taipei and Shanghai officials got a chance to rub elbows with one another this week amidst the annual Taipei-Shanghai Forum, which wrapped up on Wednesday. But it wasn't just an excuse for a whole bunch of free meals, uh, as Gavin calls them, the rubber chicken dinners. Some are arguing that with uh, high-level cross-strait exchanges frozen since President Tsai Ing-wen uh, came into office, uh, this is the one remaining venue for Taiwanese and Chinese officials to, you know, have meaningful contact, to actually get to know each other, exchange information, exchange views. Uh, well, we're going to look at whether or not there's anything to that view and if anything was accomplished this week. Uh, but first... Let's start with uh, the event itself, Gavin. Uh, there was a bit of controversy even before uh, it began because the top official that came to Taipei was, in fact, not the mayor of Shanghai. Now, he was the director of the Department of the United Front Work of the Shanghai Municipal Committee. Now, he's sticking that on a business card. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds my, important. This is my super big business card. <laughs> It's a billboard. It's a business billboard. He arrived in Taiwan on Monday to attend the forum, which began on Tuesday. And, of course, predictably enough, he was greeted at Taipei's Sungshan Airport by protesters, predominantly from the Taiwan Solidarity Union's Youth Department, Mm -hmm. who are always very vocal when Chinese officials come to Taiwan. Mm. Now, prior to the event, Taipei Mayor Kerwinger touted the Twin City Forum as an opportunity to break the stalemate in official cross-strait exchanges, which is not a bad thing to do. And then, of course, it started on Tuesday. It started with Taipei Deputy Mayor Deng Jiaji touting the city's democracy. Basically, he said Taipei is a wonderful democratic place that maintains pace with international standards of public order and has a vibrant democratic system. Now, ironically enough, he turned around and said, and you can see that because we've got all these protesters standing outside the hotel we're in. There you There's go. democracy <laughs> for you. You can come in, you can protest and you can yell things at people and hold up signs. We're democratic. There is a fine point to make. To which the Chinese official, Xia Lin said, this is... didn't even mention that, in fact. <laughs> he, he focused mostly he on the focused, 1992 consensus. He focused mostly on other things, and he basically said that China is seeking to advance the peaceful development of cross-strait ties and that adherence by both sides to the 1992 consensus remains the basis for such ties. Mm. He also turned around... Even said, between cities. Even between cities. He also, of course spoke of the one china policy and he went on to say which was the kicker city to city exchanges across the strait are based on the understanding that they are not between cities in two different countries mm-hmm. well this just about irked some people i can't say everybody <laughs> but irked some people and needless to say the presidential office shot back at this comments by saying that Basically, the two sides of the Taiwan Strait should interact with each other meaningfully without any preconditions in order to enhance mutual understanding. Mm. And for his part, Mayor Kerwin Jur said, basically, and I'm paraphrasing this very simply, why don't we all just get on? More or less, more or less. I think he calls that the 2015 new perspective, but that's a better way to put it, I would say. Uh, all right, so let's, uh, let's actually uh, frame this conversation uh, to, just to get it rolling around Mayor Kerr. Uh, because, uh, Michael, you were, you, you, you were telling me that uh, this could, you know, the way that he's positioning himself here could have uh, some impact on his future political trajectory. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> he, wants to be, he wants to be president. That's the way I see it. At least mm. he, he, in that position, you have to dream about that. And in order to do that, he has to start, he has to start establishing links with politicians on the other side. Mm. And, uh, he has to learn to work with it. As an independent politician, he's one of the few that can still do that. Exactly. Mm. Um, but a lot of Green Camp supporter are really angry about this, uh, you know. That. Just, just the fact that he accepted these officials at all? Yeah, number one. And number two is this uh, so-called uh, Sha Hiding. He's from the uh, United Front Work mm. uh, Department, which uh, to Taiwanese people, um, United Front Work in Chinese is Tongzhan. It's a very sinister meaning to it because mm-hmm. it whole context back to the white terror days and mm-hmm. It's all about Chinese communist propaganda and all sort of political subversion into mm-hmm. Taiwan. and um, United Front, there's some very negative connotations very, there. Very negative. So people are saying, well, uh, Mayor Kerr, is, uh, you're too, too naive uh, mm-hmm. yeah, about just, oh, it's, uh, he, he, he thinks you know, uh, this United Front work. It's, it's, it's just being uh, what uh, people are thinking too much of it. But a lot of, in Taiwan, it's, it's not as simple. There's a lot of politics. Uh, mm-hmm. politics behind it and uh, 
I I just want yeah. Uh, I just want to say that a lot of uh, his supporter, he's been losing popularity, and this is an, an, another one that really, got, especially the, the green camps who who support his uh, mayor run. So, uh, mm. uh, uh, Mayor Kirk gotta watch out for you know whether maybe he's playing fire in this uh, cross stray uh, mm. you know uh, interaction. Playing with fire, yeah. But I mean, Michael, do you, do you think that there is uh, anything to be gained by having this relatively neutral Taiwanese political figure that uh, can hold a forum like this with uh, with uh, you know Shanghai officials as uh, negative connotations as we might have about their business card title? Well, I think it's it's good. It's always good to talk and not fight. And uh, I think in in this case, it doesn't really matter because the mayor of Shanghai is also a Communist Party official. Yeah, he's not elected. He's Let's not, not split hairs. Let's not <laughs> split hairs. It doesn't really matter who they send. It's, it's always going to be the same party. Mm. So I think the Green Camp really needs to start taking the long view on Mayor Ko mm-hmm. and how they can properly use him. Mm. And uh, as you were saying, you were talking about uh, some of the problems with him cleaning up the cronyism in right. Taipei City. Yeah, and. I think Ko should take the hit for that. He's not DPP. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. So basically what you're saying is Ko can take the controversial stands, whether it be, you know, on far glory uh, in very local politics or whether it be uh, allowing these officials to come over. He can take that controversial stand. He can take the hit. Uh, but, you know, whatever productive thing comes out of that, uh, the DPP gets to enjoy that without uh, suffering a controversy. On. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, they signed some agreements. Yeah, there was there there were some agreements. They it's signed, not all high politics. They signed two memorandums of understanding regards cooperation between the Taipei Film Festival and the Shanghai Film Festival. They also signed agreements on cooperation between marathons, that being mm-hmm, the Taipei. Mm-hmm, one of them, mm-hmm. I couldn't. Even, I, I, I presume it's the Taipei Marathon, but Taipei has so many marathons. I've really lost me on that one, <laughs> and I'm not sure how many marathons Shanghai has. But <laughs> apparently, two of these marathons are going to cooperate. Aren't you going to be in attendance in all of those, Gavin? I'm surprised you lost track. <laughs> no, no, I don't do marathons. It's, it no, says no, that on your company bio. Anyway, no, neither here no, nor there. No. Uh, Jason, what were you going to add there? Yeah, it's uh, just that um, I think to both sides, it's actually good to uh, have uh, Mayor Kerr having this dialogue. Like he's opening up a communication f- uh, line of work or, or a platform with China. I think China also needs to uh, some kind of dialogue, a channel with uh, mm. you know with political figures in Taiwan. I think they found in Mayor Kerr because um, uh, DPP and uh, uh, and. And Chinese government, uh, maybe some of them are very too too much ideological, uh, you know, minded. So uh, they they cannot be seen to be direct talking to each other. So mm. maybe Coenze is that intermediary that you know that they find uh, both useful or also something at least keep the door open uh, mm. between uh, Taiwan and China. So I, I think it's good in uh, a long run. Mm. And of course, the Chinese official did pop across the border, didn't he? While he was here, he popped across the border into New Taipei. Oh, he met uh, with Eric Ju, of course. Oh, right, of course, yeah. And basically, yeah, Eric Ju yeah. touted city-to-city exchanges <laughs> across the Taiwan Straits, <laughs> saying that such exchanges would help boost development on both sides. Nothing new there, really. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they talked about... They it's had a bumper to- sticker. It is, basically. Yeah. Apparently, they talked about senior nursing homes, the environment, and low birth rates. Okay. Basically, and All best, important issues. And the mayor, the mayor, basically, Eric Jew, wanted to strengthen business, cultural, and educational exchanges between his city and other cities in China. Now, while we've focused on Taipei here, mm. what's another interesting fact is the Kaohsiung is, of course, hosting its Harbour mm. Cities Forum mm. next month. Mm-hmm. And there's been some controversy there because, of course, they have invited cities from China. They've invited people from Tianjin, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Shaman, and Fuzhou. Very lovely invitations they sent over in June. In June yeah? Basically, yeah. And they've heard nothing from them. Ooh, <laughs> cold shoulder. And of course, Chen Zhu, who was the mayor of Kaohsiung, she is a member of the DPP. She's not independent, and she's not in the KMT. Of course, Mayor Kerr, independent. Eric Ju in New Taipei in the KMT. Mayor Chen Zhu is, of course, very green. Mm. Uh, well, 47 cities from 25 countries have confirmed their attendance at the three-day Harbour City Forum. They've all sent their They've RSVPs. Their, the Chinese cities haven't yet. Mm. And so there's still some question about whether they're going to send anyone to this forum in Kaohsiung. But Kaohsiung city officials have said they would like the Chinese to attend. There's no animosity. Mm-hmm. They, they're, again, city-to-city forums. Right. And <laughs> where more, more than one country's city can sit down and talk. 25 countries' cities can all sit around a table and talk. Mm. Hmm. Right. So, uh, I mean, again, perhaps this just uh, illustrates what uh, both of you were talking about a second ago about uh, the role that Mayor Kirk can play as a, you know, relatively...
relatively less ideological, relatively less, you know, in that camp or that camp uh, sort of politician. Uh, I'm going to let uh, Michael have the last word on this subject. Uh, just uh, in general, I mean, w- w- would you agree uh, with uh, what Jason has been saying here? Is uh, Are these level of ties as, you know, the more formal presidential level ties, that sort of stuff are kind of frozen out? Uh, is this city the city sort of thing uh, important? Are, are there real concrete gains for Taiwan or for China? I think they're important. They go back, what, 35 years now? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's useful to continue them. And to have someone like Tunji promoting them, who's still green, is also really important. It shows that the greens can get along with China. And I think China's uh, lack of response shows, on the other side, they have no idea how to handle a DPP-led Taiwan. Mm. They have no. If they had a policy, they would just say yes or no mm-hmm. right away if they knew what they were doing. But, but, but now they're waiting and seeing. They, they're not sure. So there's a certain amount of unpredictability in this relationship right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> as always. As always. All right. We are going to move past uh, that big heaping mess to our final heaping mess, which is uh, called the Olympics. This is the last up in the broadcast. As promised, uh, we are going to talk about what happened in Rio. Rio, of course, wrapped up earlier this week. Uh, Taiwan came home with three medals, one gold, two bronzes, uh, a little bit below expectations. If uh, you believed the uh, Olympics committee, they had set the, the bar just a little bit higher. Uh, along with those medals, though, uh, we also managed to stir uh, a number of controversies uh, while we were over there uh, in Rio. But uh, let's start with the performance. Let's start with those medals and what we saw from Taiwanese athletes. Gavin, what did we see from Taiwanese athletes? Well, Taiwan ended up, of course, with one gold and two bronze, <laughs> like you said. They ended up 50th in the Rio medals table, sandwiched between Vietnam and the Bahamas. It was so front-loaded. Like, all those medals were won in the first couple of days. It looked like we might be on track. It was all over to... for Taiwan. Come the mo- first Monday, <laughs> yeah, the yep. first week of the Olympic Games, uh, Taiwan yeah. won the medals by the Sunday, basically. Yep. <laughs> so yep. it was all over, yes. Now, of course, weightlifters Xu Xu Ching and Guo Xing Chun brought home one gold and one bronze, while Tanya Ling, Tanya Ting, sorry, Lei Chen Ying and Lin Shi Jia beat Italy to claim bronze in the women's archery team event. Now, prior to the Olympics beginning, the sports administration here in Taiwan had set a goal of three gold, two silver, and one bronze. Right, because that's that's how sports works: is you say a number and then you then you do it. Yeah, now, one of these, several of these medals were expected to be taken in the Taekwondo event. Mm-hmm. Right, that was the big disappointment that this year. That was the big disappointment, and in fact, this year's Olympics were the first time Taiwan failed to get any medals in Taekwondo since the sport was included in the Olympics in two thousand. Right, so big disappointment right there. But there is a but. There is a but. Okay. This year's performance at the Olympics was better than the 2012 performance at the London Games. There we go. When Taiwan only had one silver and one bronze. So 2012 was a disaster, an unmitigated disaster. 2016 was a mitigated disaster. There we go. Mm-hmm. A little mitigation. Uh, Jason, yeah, what did you want to throw in there? Well, I, I cover some of the uh, sports news for Taipei Times, and I could say that result has done more and definitely disappointing. And uh, num- but it started on a high, and it just went downhill. Uh, you mm. know. And but the thing is, it's good for sports fans and people who are interested in getting sports and all kind of ball games to uh, uh, develop in, on a more uh, uh, correct or on a more uh, you know better level because there was a lot of controversies and uh, you know a, a couple of scandals right. there. And in fact, well, one several journalists they said, well. For Taiwan Olympic game, it started with the tennis scandal. It ended with the the uh, badminton scandal. You know, mm. the, uh, tennis because the way dropped out before the game because right. it was uh, the uh, and also tennis because the sponsorship uh, there was a, a problem with the you know the deal with the uh, Chinese Taipei Badminton Association. So the whole news in the local pr- press it's all over uh, in the past two weeks is that. We need to reform the whole structuring. There's a lot of problem within all right. these uh, people who are holding power in the sports authority. So let's make some changes. Right. It, it, it does seem to have started uh, a little bit of a conversation on that front. Uh, let's unpack a couple of those controversies. I, I, I read about three big ones. The uh, sneaker the, one got me. Why yeah. Matters, well, what, and that, that, that I think that's matters, the best illustration. Why it matters what type of sneakers she wore is beyond me. Okay, what so let's go past Shia Sue. Let's skip that one because we talked about it before. Gavin, tell us about the sneaker controversy. This was the badminton player, the women's badminton player. Uh, Dai Ziying, very, uh, she's very 
rising star, and she's played really with, with a very good uh, s- skill. Yeah. But not this time around. No, a little she, disappointment she there. She got her shoes back to front, didn't she, Jason? Yes, <laughs> certainly this time. Was, it, was she wearing Yonix on the court? She is her personal sponsorship was Victor, but because of this uh, Dio National Association, she has to uh, uh, the logo has not been shown, so she uh, I think erased it out. But because uh, for somehow she had to be under contract by the National Association to wear everything Yonix, but. Mm. So, so, so basically, Yonix was what uh, the Olympic Committee had agreed to. That was the sponsor. She was expected to wear the sponsor during the games, but that's not what she was comfortable with. No, apparently uh, they gave her blisters. Yeah. They gave her blisters. So she wanted to wear what she was comfortable with. The Victor shoes. And she got in trouble because of that. Basically, she got sanctioned by the committee for uh, mm. not wearing the shoes that she wanted to wear. Yeah, the Taiwan Badminton Association tried to fine, fine her. Mm. Fine her, fine her. <laughs> right, and, uh, you know, that caused a bit of a stink. That doesn't look great for mm. the Olympic Committee to, you know, be slapping one of its own athletes. Yeah. I'm really happy the whole thing got exposed because on the website, almost everybody is uh, supporting Dai Ziying on this front. And mm. a lot of Taiwanese people are saying, wow, this, this whole... Uh, Problem. Let us see how the how badly run how uh, uh, the whole thing is corrupt. The sports officials who doesn't play sports, who are not out there toiling and training every day, mm-hmm. but who they go to all these uh, big international tournament, Olympic committee, uh, Olympic games in the past on business class. Whereas you know, but it, the, the the whole thing is is has has changed. It, it, so the line of criticism against these guys would just be that they care more about the sponsorship deal, mm-hmm. which, you know, they set up. That's their, you know, very parochial interest. They care more about that than uh, the success of their own player. Yeah. Badminton, that- tennis, it's basically just a racket, huh? Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh man! If only we could end the show right there. I think we have might have to end the whole series yeah, of yeah. shows on that note. Of course, the government did say that it's going to look into this with a review of the sports, the way the sports is handled here. But of course, yesterday on Thursday we had a review of the way the military is run. Mm. So of course, maybe next week we'll get a review of the way the sports federation. Yeah. Is so run. many reviews. Yeah. So many so reviews. The government they 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 just say that uh, come September after. Uh, there will be a whole big national review on the sports and Olympic committee how it's run, and um, it, it, it's it needs uh, to be reformed and massive uh, a lot of uh, chops. Uh, people, a lot of people will be on the chopping block. Yeah. Mm. All right. So uh, I can't top I can't top that racket joke. So I think that we're going to have to. If I can't top it, we have to move on. Even uh, Gavin is silent. Wow. I feel like I really did something. You really, yeah, you, you contributed a lot to that story, Michael. Thank you. Glad, glad that you're here today. Uh, on that note, though, uh, we are going to move on from sports into a very different kind of game. Uh, we talked about this before on the show, but Pokemon Go just uh, keeps going and going and going here in Taiwan. Uh, word on the street is that most other countries have gotten bored with it by now, but... Certainly that is not the case in Taiwan, uh, where Beitou has been the site of mobs and throngs of people uh, flocking to the Beitou Park to play Pokemon Go in that area. We can get into why exactly it's such a popular spot in just a second. Uh, But first, let's just throw things over to Gavin to give us the latest on the Pokemon desk, which, of course, you've been manning uh, these last two weeks. Oh, yeah. Well, it was quite funny. Oh, you said the Beitou incident, when thousands of people flocked up to Beitou Park and left mountains of trash after they did whatever Mm -hmm. they did with their Pokemon Mm -hmm. games. Mm -hmm. It's been caught on video. That's what I was going to get to next. Now, this incident was caught on video. And it went viral, mm-hmm. as videos have a habit of doing. <laughs> right. In some, in some fairly famous news sources. Yes. Now, here we go. Here's a quote from a news source. Thousands of Pokemon Go players have brought Taiwan's capital to a standstill after stampeding through the city like a scene from an apocalyptic horror movie. Ah, uh, Beto. Po- this was an Australian publication. Mm-hmm. While the Pokemon Go craze may be ebbing in Australia, it's only just begun in Taiwan, which is the last country to get the critically acclaimed app. That's what it says. <laughs> critically acclaimed. Emphasis on critical. It goes on to say, what looks like a post-apocalyptic stand Stampede for a dystopic future has been identified as the app's newest players, eager to catch them all, like the rest of the world in Taiwan. So the the Pokemon Go is turning our young people. I, I haven't finished yet. It oh, goes, it goes on me. to say, no, no, cars, no, no. Were, cars were brought to a standstill in the video posted on August the twenty first, 
as the mob of players raced through a busy intersection in Taipei and clambered over the top of one another to catch a <laughs> Snorlux. Uh, excuse me, that's pronounced Snorlax. Oh, right. <laughs> Grew up in the is 90s. Is that ca- some kind of night insomnia thing when you're constipated? It is, it is the sleeping Pokemon, so it snores. Snorlax. Ah, it makes perfect sense. And that would happen in Beitou, where Jason lives. I live in Beitou area. and Our I man on see, the scene. Yeah, I could tell you I, I, exactly um, the report on the scene right there. It used to be very nice and quiet for the <laughs> Japanese and the Korean uh, tourists and for, you know, nice, uh, you know, hot springs. This only just started two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah only two that weeks ago. It seems so distant to you now. <laughs> yeah, it becomes just a crazy stamping people surging crowd. But I, in a way, I, I like it in a way because it puts Beitou and Taipei on the map, on international uh, media attention. I like it because, you know... <laughs> American, British, and Australian, it mm-hmm. makes big headlines, and I yeah. really, it puts Beitou and Taipei, you know, famous, prominent, and people might be saying, hey, I'm going to book a ticket to this park, wherever it's happening, and see all these, you know, happening. And um, I, I think it, I think it's, maybe it's uh, good for Taiwan tourism, which we are we are in desperate need, because they say, oh, we uh, all the Chinese are coming, so maybe we could get the Pokemon <laughs> tourism uh, going. Maybe yeah. Maybe Tsai doesn't need uh, her go south policy. She needs her Pokemon Go policy. Of course, Beto's <laughs> in the capital, and apparently you were somewhere the other week. That's not quite in the capital. And you also you saw some Pokemon Go's Pokemon. going on. I was in I was in Orchid Island, and people are in Orchid Island playing Pokemon Go. Is that were, were there throngs? Were there heaps? There were. Uh, even one is too many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like... Now, what kind of Pokemon do you turn up on Orchid Island? Are they all, like, irradiated? And I, I guess that's where, you find, that's where you find the best Pokemon. Can't find them anywhere else. That's, that's really... Uh, that sounds crazy, because Orchid Island is natural beauty, the, the coast, uh, and the rocky coast, also the Dao, the Aboriginal culture. But people are viewing this natural scenery through... They're, it's through their tiny little phone. Yeah, that's right. and, that's, and, and it's an augmented virtual reality, and people yeah. are looking through a little window and uh, looking their heads down instead of watching all these great blue skies and, you know, uh, nice uh, sea coast. Exactly, coasts. exactly. I want to go on record. This game is antisocial. It's nonviolent. If these people were normal, they'd be paying a first-person shooter and mass killing. There we go. Okay? Why can't be happening. they'd be doing that at home? Well, there you are. <laughs> on the sofa. <laughs> But they'd be, <laughs> but they'd be on the internet. They'd be on the internet yeah. talking to other people, saying Taiwan number one, <laughs> <laughs> which is a much more healthy way of interacting with the world. Obviously, uh, I might want to add that Beitou Park. The reason why it it's got so many people, as it has come from this game develop, developer. The game it has came from the game developer who used uh, people who's been taking photos of all these places. And Beto happened to be a lot of cultural uh, cultural sites and a lot of uh, old Japanese uh, uh-huh. no houses. No Pokemon yeah. in Taichung. But but also because <laughs> yeah, a lot of these so-called monsters they had right. to be at the different like uh, Beto Park has. Right. It's got a creek, there's a three right. water ponds. It also got a mountain hill. It's got a cultural attraction. So they put all these monsters at a place at a different geographic location. So it seems to be a happen to be a congregation of all these monsters there. Next to the library. Yeah, yeah. Next right. to the Beitou Hot Springs Museum. <laughs> yep. 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 Oh, there we go. Getting a little business over there. Right, exactly like you were saying. This was actually built on the back of a previous augmented right. reality game. And so a lot of the focal points in that game that were set when that game was big, mm-hmm. those have been inherited by uh, the new Pokemon mm-hmm. Go game. And those just happen to be uh, spots of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, another spot, a, a lot of spots that have become Pokemon spots, actually, are those really ugly uh, power breakers throughout uh, mm-hmm. Taipei City. <laughs> A lot of those are, are pokey stops now, uh, but fortunately, Beitou has become the sponge and is ridding uh, the parts of town that I'm in. I haven't seen any in my part of town, so and I'm not complaining. I saw a guy, saw a guy this morning mm. on my way to work at ungodly hours this morning. Mm-hmm. He was riding a U bike, which is a Taipei City government rental bike. He had his phone on some mount that he'd put on the bicycle because his bicycles do not come with phone mounts, and he was cycling down the road, stopping, looking at his phone. Mm. At four thirty in the morning, 
<laughs> is that, I don't know if that's dedication or insanity or just sheer bloody-minded stupidity. The line between all of those is getting blurred quite a bit by this game. I don't want to talk about Pokemon anymore. All right, I hopefully... Pokemon would go away. I, ooh, there we go. There we go. Hopefully, hopefully this time next week the fad will have uh, faded just a little bit and this can be the last time that we bring this up on the show. I, I really wish uh, that I had recorded the heavy sigh that Michael issued when I said we were talking about Pokemon today. It was a heavy sigh. But anyway, hopefully we won't have to inflict this on anybody anymore. We can move on. Uh, And with that, we are going to round out the show, because that was our final story for today. We will have to leave it there. uh, Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, Uh, generally starting between 8.15 and 8.20, depending on the commercial load. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, uh, and occasionally the blog, depending on how busy I am that particular Friday, to make a blog post. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, as always, joined by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Go. Pokemon, go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will soon, I promise. Uh, also in studio with us today is uh, Michael Turton. Thank you as well. Thank you, Keith. And thanks to you as well, Jason Pan. Thank you, everyone. Thanks to you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.